Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. We all want to follow our dreams and make them come true. But how do we do that? Tonight, we talk with a phenomenal family where each person has done just that, and they share with us their wisdom, life lessons, and candid stories about how they turned their dreams into reality. From the runways of the red carpet in Hollywood, to being an award-winning published author, to behind the scenes working for Marvel editing movies, the Long family will delight and astound you as we listen to their journeys from difficult times to dreams come true. All this on this episode of The Spark. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I'm here in the studio with the Long family, and it makes me think of the Von Trapps, the Sound of Music family, because I'm sitting here with these three amazingly talented people. And each one of them has their own unique story. They, they didn't just become talented people overnight. Each one of us has a story of difficulties and hardships, things we have to go through to get there. And this lovely family sitting before me is no different. I'm going to start out with Joel Long. Joel is a published author, published poet. You can tell me any other accolades, Joel. What am I missing? Oh, I don't know what to add to that. I mean, published poet, I write uh, creative nonfiction as well. I do a lot of other arts. I photograph and I do painting. I play music and my life has been all about those three arts for the most part and raising those two girls over there. And you've been a single father? Yeah, I raised the girls from when they were six and nine and now they're raised. I don't have to do anything. I know they're grown up girls. We say girls, but they're women. Yeah. 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 Beautiful women. Joel, I, I know your beginnings and I think that it's such an important story to tell that you had a unique childhood growing up. It wasn't the typical childhood. Yeah, I mean, while I did have a stepdad, my uh, mother raised four boys pretty much on her own after my father uh, passed when I was just six months old. And my mom just supported us in everything that we did from the time really, I was thinking back to when I was three. I started sneaking into a museum near our house, the Charles M. Russell Museum, and looking at artwork and bare feet and bare chested and seeing art and finding it so engaging. I kind of fell into it right there. I kind of knew a sense of the depth of art and where it could lead me. And it just started there and got richer and richer. When did you start writing? When did that become a part of your life? Oh, I wrote some really terrible poems in high school. <laughs> One about a, a girl who d dumped me at prom and I wrote about the rose petals falling down like teardrops, but really serious. <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> Seriously writing, I started in my sophomore year of college at University of Northern Colorado. I had a, a brilliant poet who taught me there, James Doyle, and he was just brilliant, you know kind of rough around the edges, missing a tooth. He talked with a Queen's accent and he spouted huge passages of Milton and Blake. He was absolutely brilliant. And then he was a great poet himself. And when I started writing poems for him, he saw in one of them a couple of lines. He said, if 
this can't be in the Norton anthology. I don't know what could. Uh, like, oh my gosh, maybe I have something here. And and I just kept on going from that. That was a real springboard to have somebody encourage me in such a way. Well, and you know, there's such an interesting almost misnomer about poetry, even still. If someone's not into poetry and they hear someone's a poet, they might think, oh, yes, this is rhyme and you write for Hallmark. And in, instead, it's just this amazing, beautiful, this pouring out of your soul that comes. Where have you found some of your greatest inspiration? Well, that's an interesting thing, because I, I really feel like inspiration comes from work. And you have to have your hands in the language constantly. And so I am a pretty prolific writer. I know that if I want to get inspiration, I have to drag inspiration down to me rather than wait for it to come. If I'm waiting for it to come, I will not write nearly as much. And if I don't have my hands in the materials, when that inspiration comes, I'm not ready for it. So really, inspiration is work. And uh, just constantly having my hands in language and listening to the rhythms of language come, hopefully coming to surprises every time I sit down and write. Joel, I asked you to share a couple of poems with us. If you'd share one of your poems. I'm going to read this old poem. And I've known Stephanie for a long, long time. And this is a, a poem about a winter a long time ago. And so it, this is actually probably 25 years old, maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's called Staying in Bed. I lie in our bed through the hours of the morning, reading from a book of elegies and love songs, as I gaze around me at my own songs, writing themselves into the corner of the room, in the dry flower laid beneath the picture frame, and the candle wax pooled at the base of the candle where the night ended and sleep began. It has snowed all night, and it continues to snow. She opened the blinds so that I can sit up in bed, so that I can see in the mirror the top of my head and the window behind me, snow passing through, trees being covered. A crow flies past and drags a dozen squawking grackles behind it. Two wrens preen themselves in the branches of a pine. She has made a place for my spirit to dwell, and I rest there the glass eye in the socket of a doll's head, balancing the windows and the light coming through. The quiet of the room says, there is cold. It says, I am shelter. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. I remember when you read that just a few months ago and wow, brought tears to my eyes. I think it brought tears to everyone's eyes. Well, thank you. Thank you. If, if I think about what... What happens when you write a poem like that? And that went so long ago, I probably don't completely remember. But there is a sort of sense of playing with the material of experience, memory, and then through the imagination, turning it into the object of poetry. So, you know, that one has all those different elements of, of the bedroom and the windows with the natural world sort of happening outside and that sense of being comforted by the room. Can you talk a little bit about how did you end up with these two girls? 
it's a pretty complicated story when it comes down to it. Oh, gosh. Because this was all going on about the time you wrote that poem. Yeah, that, that's true. Of course, I was married, and maybe even at the time I wrote that poem. I had Hannah and Sarah. Sarah was uh, pretty young at that time, maybe one and a half, two years old, something like that. And Hannah was six-ish, something like that. Four. And was it four? That's yeah, it was true, four. Right? Yeah. four. I'm only two years old. That's, that's right. So so they were, they were very young. And I was about to lose that marriage and move into, I think, a pretty difficult spot where the girls were with their mom and I did not have them, but I, I had them quite a bit of the time. I took care of them um, pretty much every weekend. And in the summers, they stayed with me in my little apartment, little basement apartment. They they had a futon and they slept on the futon and I'd go in there and find them raveled up in a blanket and it was, it was nice. But, you know, and then several years after that, there came a point where they had to come and live with me. And at that point, from that point forward, I, I raised them as best I could, teaching every day and coming home and reading them books at night and making some sort of a dinner and trying to keep them clean and keep, <laughs> keep their hair brushed. This is the nice thing about these guys, though, that, um, you know, and Sarah can talk about this. She's in fashion now. I don't know how. I was raised with three brothers, so four boys, and somehow these guys became such women. I, I have no, I, I had nothing to do with that. I don't really understand that, but they learned how to do their hair and they learned how to sometimes dye their hair through trial and error. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's amazing to me. I provided shelter and I provided food and I drove them to acting lessons and to soccer practice and, and so on. But a lot of magic happens in the midst of it. Hannah, what do you remember about growing up with this guy? <laughs> I was always surrounded by art and my dad always encouraged art and whatever I wanted to do when I wanted to be an actress. He he took me to acting class. I think it was almost every day. And then I started doing plays and he would take me every night for rehearsal and on the weekends and did violin lessons. And it was a very encouraging environment. Yeah, he supported us in whatever we wanted to do and even when I decided I didn't want to go to college, he didn't protest. He just encouraged us to follow our passions. And yeah, but yeah, he didn't help us with any fashion or doing our hair. <laughs> we learned that from Mary Kate Ashley movies. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering where it came from. Thanks. Or the internet. The internet. Yeah. Sure. Existed then almost. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any good stories, either one of you, about your dad that you'd like to share with us? Oh. oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of our uncle's favorite stories is when we went on that long family road trip and <laughs> he still remembers how much our dad would pack up into this little Corolla and poor little Sarah's just sitting there being trying to fit in with all the drawers in the back seat. And I, I lined them with my quilts from childhood and made them a little chair bed. And that just kind of speaks to dad's clutter. <laughs> but in, in the clutter, there's, there's a little bit of genius in there. Mm -hmm. You're like a, you know, mad scientist. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be behind the scenes in Hollywood, to be working with some of the biggest names, some of the A-listers, and getting them fit and ready for their walks down the red carpet? 
Breaking into this scene in Hollywood isn't an easy task, and it's easy to get derailed and not go for what you truly want. Sarah Long talks to us tonight about how she was able to listen to her inner voice and find the strength within her to go after what she truly wanted. I work at Dior. I work in public relations. It's mainly based on VIPs. We do celebrity dressing for red carpet events and talk shows and award season. So yeah, it's quite a bit of work. I didn't really start thinking that this is what I wanted to do. I had no idea what public relations meant, especially in LA. So when I moved to LA at 21, I also skipped college, which <laughs> yeah, our father's a I'm sure my dad is really us. excited. But when I moved to Los Angeles, I just thought I was going to be a stylist. And I did it for maybe two years. I came out. My first job was at the Emmys. It was an internship with a big stylist. And we dressed like all sorts of people for the Emmys. And it was really cool and inspiring. But it was so hard. <laughs> I basically didn't know where I was going within LA. And I was like getting directions from my, from my boss, like to go back and forth and like go find Saks. And I had no idea where Saks was. And I didn't know like West Hollywood from Beverly Hills. And somehow I did it. And it was very rewarding. But then <laughs> I did that for a year. It was a lot of just grind and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I thought that maybe there was a different area of fashion that I should explore that is more office-based and a little bit more true to a certain brand. And so I started marketing, tried marketing for a little while, and then didn't like that. <laughs> and my next step was to be at Jimmy Choo. And that opened so many doors for me. I met so many people, so many stylists, so many celebrities. My bosses knew everyone in the business from agents to publicists to, you know, like, like whoever you need to know in LA basically for this industry. So I did that for two years. In the midst of that, I also worked at Diane von Furstenberg. Same thing, public relations, celebrity dressing, which also like I met Diane von Furstenberg and it was very surreal because I grew up reading magazines and seeing her in it and knowing what like Studio 54, Studio 54, <laughs> I'm young, but like seeing her at Studio 54 dancing in her gold dresses and just understanding what the fashion industry was through like paper, you know, through these things that I had in my basement in Salt Lake alone. And then when I was in LA, I was living that life and it was very, yeah, it was super interesting. And I took like a six month break after I was done at Jimmy Choo for the last award season, maybe even less, maybe three months. And this opportunity at Dior came up and my boss at my last job knew somebody at Dior and it was perfect. It just fit. And right now I, I'm, I think I'm about eight months in to my job at Dior and it is extremely intense. I wouldn't say it's glamorous at all. I ship a lot of packages. I speak to messengers. It's a lot about communication. I email stylists back and forth all day. I get thousands of emails a day and have to read every single one of them 
possibly multiple times, a lot of recaps and all of that. But at the end of the day, once we send out a press release of celebrities on the red carpet, it's worth it. And we just got done dressing people for um, the Oscars. for the entire award season. Award season, this usually every year, it's, it's about two to three months. So it's January to February or March. And it starts with Golden Globes. Goes on to SAGs, Critics' Choice, the Grammys, and all sorts of other things in between, like Sundance Film Festival even. And then it ends with the Oscars. And yeah, we dressed, I mean, we dressed 14 people for Golden Globes, which is unheard of. It's somebody somewhere that does men's, women's, and couture. So yeah, it's very exciting. I'm exhausted. I bet. <laughs> this is my first weekend. It's really fun. <laughs> So do you go to any of those ceremonies? Not usually. Sometimes if like if a celebrity needs you at an event, then like, yeah, we'll go and we'll dress them and make sure it's perfect when they're once they step on the carpet. But for the most part, everything that I do is prep work. So we if somebody wants a custom dress, like we are already talking to the stylist months before or I mean, there are some last minute requests. But basically, like if we're going to dress somebody for an event like the carpet we plan and prep and do multiple fittings and have tailors flown in from Paris and all like all sorts of things so yeah it's it's much more prep than it is the actual event which is good because by the time the actual event happens we want to go to sleep <laughs> so yeah. yeah yeah well and you know LA I, I lived in L.A. my first year of college. Mm. I actually went to the Brooks Institute of Art out there. And, you know, I know I used to joke about that that one year in L.A., I really aged like 15 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it can be very fast. And we were in a lot of clubs and met same thing, a lot of celebrities, a lot of people in the music industry. How have you been able to kind of maintain your sanity and not get eaten up when... <laughs> Chewed up and spit out. Well, I think in general, I have a tough skin. <laughs> My sister is telling me that it's because of her. Mm -hmm. It slightly is. I moved here when she was already out here. So she did help me a lot. But at the same time, like you come to L.A. and you get parking tickets and people are weird and mean or self-absorbed. But yeah, Elliot eats you alive your first year. Yeah, the first yeah. year can be the worst. I think for me, it definitely was because I didn't know. I didn't really know anything. You know, I was 21 years old and I had some life experience in Salt Lake City and traveling. But other than that, I was pretty naive. And if you go to L.A., you grow up quickly because everybody is people say it's such a slow place. But if you're in the industry, it's not. It's really not. It's just like anywhere else. And I've worked with people from New York to to China for years. So it's <laughs> you can't be sleepy in a sleepy town, you know. But yeah, I think that I maintain it because we are very close to our family. My dad taught me to be really, really close with my like with art and anything creative. And I love music and I don't know. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a, I wouldn't say loner, but I like to be alone a lot. And LA is great for that. They have great apartments. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Oh, so, and dogs. Yeah. Dogs. <laughs> I am so with you there. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. I just, it sounds like that you really have been able to find your niche there. Yeah. 
and and you're fit and just kind of blooming where you're at. And the two of you live together. Yep. Yes. How is that? Terrible. No, it's it's good. I moved to LA 10 years ago and I think Sarah's about five. And so when Sarah got here, I had already kind of established my career and I was a little bit more steady and it, I needed a roommate and Sarah was there and I feel like I'd rather have family li- living with me than a random stranger. So Sarah moved in and she's been helping me take care of my golden retriever <laughs> for a few years, but it works well. Eventually, we'll probably both get married and move on. But for now, it's that's good. Your support means the world to us. Hi, it's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member-supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, all of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at noco.fm. Sometimes it's difficult to understand why one door closes in our life or an opportunity that we had really hoped for doesn't turn out. Oftentimes it's exactly those times where it seems like the worst things are happening that a different door will open when one closes. Hannah Long was able to find her way through closed doors and amazing new ones opened, revealing the career that she had always wanted. I'm an editor and I moved there to become an editor. I taught myself in Utah with my dad's uh, MacBook or what was it? It was the big bubble Macs that looked like zebras and and leopards. Remember those? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I taught myself to edit and then I got an internship at Lionsgate and luckily my dad's stepbrother graciously let me move in with them in Redondo Beach. And then, yeah, so I was able to work on some documentaries and I got a lot of experience working with uh, some pretty good editors. Um, And then luckily, since my dad is such a prolific person, my dad's best friend from around when he was in college became a famous editor. He works with Mark Forster and he did a James Bond film. He did a Monster's Ball. He had an opportunity for, he had a job offer as a post PA on the film World War Z with Brad Pitt. And I jumped at it and that was on the Paramount lot. So I got to meet a ton of people and just worked my way up. And eventually I, my industry is very, I guess it's unique, but you have to be in the union basically to work on any top film or TV. You have to get into the union or the editor's guild. So I did that. I think you need 100 paid days or something and some recommendations and was able to get onto a TV show and eventually ended up on Cosmos. Uh, Cosmos is Space Time Odyssey, uh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson show. And that was kind of my big break when I got that job. I didn't I didn't really know what it was. I'd heard of Carl Sagan, but that was before I was born. <laughs> I think it was 1984 or something. Billions um, and billions. Billions and billions. <laughs> and billions. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that it turned out to be really successful. And so I just used that as a platform to get my next job and just kind of took off from there. Now, are you with Marvel now? I am. 
I joined Marvel about a year and a half ago. I got on to Avengers Endgame, which <laughs> when they called me for Avengers 4, I actually had no idea there were four Avengers movies at, at all. I didn't really watch Marvel movies, so I had no idea how life-changing and career-changing it would be. And I don't think I even realized it until the first trailer came out and we were breaking records left and right. And yeah, the fans were crazy for that. And I was like, oh, I thought it was a big deal. But now I know this is going to be a really, really big deal. <laughs> well, and as an editor, what are you doing? Um, so on the Marvel films, I'm the visual effects editor. So I'm working with their two lead editors uh, on that film that was uh, Jeff Ford and Matt Schmidt. And Jeff Ford's probably one of the best editors in town. He's he's a genius. Uh, so we work under him and help facilitate the visual effects process, which is the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just taking it, taking the shots, making sure they're going in the right direction. It's, it's honestly very technical and boring. <laughs> it sounds very technical and boring. Stephanie was talking about telling stories and, you know, part of what I understand you to do is to put those shots together so that the story is told as it goes through, through the visuals. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think editing is one of the most misunderstood crafts. I think it goes hand in hand with directing, really. Yeah. The directors, Kevin Feige and the Russo brothers were in with our lead editor, Jeff, crafting the story from even on set, Jeff was required to be on set to make sure that we were getting what we wanted. And the editing process is really where, where the film comes together. And yeah. Yeah, I'm having my first experience of that right now in post-production of yeah. the documentary that we shot, When Sparks Ignite, that I'm right now in the post-production editing mm -hmm. with Doug Beachwood, who was our executive director. Mm -hmm. And so I absolutely, it's like, that's what we're doing now is trying to get these shots, all these different pieces to come together and somehow make a storyline mm -hmm. to pull the audience in. Yeah. Especially in documentary, you're really, that's where the writing comes into play. That the editor is so important. And I think often the editor gets a writing credit on documentaries. But yeah, I think people are starting to understand it now. I think as more, you know, iPhone apps and people are making little YouTube videos. And I think people are starting to understand what I do <laughs> a little bit better. <laughs> well, talk a little bit about your own life, because your life hasn't just been one smooth street either. Just this easy road to go down. Can you share with us a little bit about your own personal journey? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it seems I feel like I've had hardships, but I feel like I've always been very lucky. I mean, we had the best dad ever. High five on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were very happy. But yeah, my mom, you know, she struggled with alcoholism and couldn't take care of us. And I was I was nine. And I think I kind of I understood it more than Sarah did. I think Sarah was too young to really understand what was going on until later. But yeah, I just don't dwell on it. I think that I was always supported in a way to think that I could do whatever I wanted. And so I just never gave up and I don't dwell on the bad things that happen. And I, I actually feel very lucky to have the experience we had growing up. Like we were traveling all the time. We were reading, doing art. That's why we have such a thick skin for the rough streets of L.A. <laughs> and they're so rough. <laughs> no, we're actually very blessed in L.A. I think I think yeah, we've been we very are. lucky. Yeah. So actually, your childhood gave you guys, it sounds like, a lot of just resiliency. 
Yeah. And and then the ability with with a dad like Joel mm-hmm. to just explore your own creativity yeah. and, and your own talents. I think our dad gave us a lot of freedom, both in a good way and a bad way. <laughs> he actually, did let us do a lot. <laughs> I was actually just thinking of a story when you mentioned that. Ooh, my friend Maeve, I remember one time my friend Maeve came over and I was like 17. And I think it was like one in the morning. And she was at a party a couple blocks away. And my dad was outside walking the dogs and Maeve's just like, Joel, I'm going to grab Hannah. And you were just like, okay, have fun. (laughs) Do you not remember this, Joel? Maybe I didn't know what time it was. (laughs) (laughs) It was late. But that, I mean, that transferred into. But also, yeah, it gave us like, I feel like because we have the history of alcoholism in our family, just having the freedom to choose and experience. And I feel like we're more in control of our lives and we've seen the pitfalls. We've seen the downside. So. So experiencing that with your mom actually gave you guys this other perspective that I don't want to be there. I don't want to live like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Yeah. Or at least we're aware that it could be in our genes. Yeah. That reality is there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. One of the things I wanted to talk with you guys about is what are the things in your life that helped you to gain wisdom or things that really impacted you and and helped you to grow? Well, I talked about work earlier and and I learned that from from Jim Doyle, the the poet. When I was in graduate school with him, uh, we did a a project over uh, winter break and then into uh, January where we wrote 10 poems a week for six weeks in a row. So we wrote 60 poems. And for him, it didn't matter if they were any good. What mattered was that we got those 10 poems a week and we put them in the mail on the postmark date. They had to be postmarked by Friday at five o'clock. And if I did that every week, he would sign off on my master's thesis. If I missed, he wouldn't be on my committee at all. And he was the poet. You know, he was the poet that led me to that that writing in general, I wouldn't have done it without him. Now, if, if he'd missed, cause he was going to send poems to me, he would have signed anything that I wrote. I could have, you know, gotten the dog food bag and written out the ingredients and I would have, <laughs> which might be an interesting poem, but what the, the wisdom that came from it was this. And I, I kept my sort of writing process in a similar direction, not quite so crazy as that, but that you write your way into what you don't know. And then you get into this sort of wilderness that shows you something new that you needed to say and you didn't know. And that has become my work process in general. I continue to do that, whether I'm writing poems or prose. I feel like mine are kind of general. It's not a specific person or event. I think it's just when I learned perseverance and uh, knowing what was right. I think when I first moved to L.A., I had a lot of pushback from family members about, you know, going to college because that was... That was just what you did. But I knew I had researched. I knew that I didn't need to go to college and I knew that I'd be wasting my time because I know exactly what I want to do. And so just learning to like listen to my gut and my instincts in that situation and then holding on to that later in my career and saying no to projects that I don't think are going to serve me. And for example, I feel like I feel like things come to you when you say no to the the right things to say no to. For instance, on Cosmos season two, I had a I had an interesting experience where they just weren't treating me the way that I deserved to be treated after working with them for so long. And I just said, this isn't going to work there. They promised me a pay bump and a, 
position raise and they didn't give me that. They didn't follow through. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this. And I quit. I didn't have another job. And I got a phone call two days later and it was our VFX production manager. And he said, hey, I have a Marvel thing. And I was like, oh, I think that that's probably like a web series they want me to edit for. And that phone call was Avengers 4. And it just happened right in the nick of time, right when I was like so down. So, yeah, just learning to say no and like stay true to your gut. Well, and that's just it. It's like I've heard the phrase, the universe knows no secrets. Mm. And it's like, so if all of your energy is going into something, even if that something is sucking you dry and it's really negative, there's no opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so you said the no and you shut that door and then all of a sudden look what opened up for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It does sound kind of magical, but for some reason it keeps happening to me that way. (laughs) <laughs> over and over again. I think it's a principle in physics. I yeah, think that, yeah. you know, there's really something to that. Yeah. yeah. And and I love that. That's, that's such a great message about being able to listen to ourselves. Like you mm-hmm. said, listen to our gut, trust our intuition. Yeah. And that it's okay to have those boundaries and say no. Yeah. You know, when you were really saying, no, I'm worth more than this. Yeah. Just knowing your worth and knowing what to ask for. Sarah knows this too, I think. Sarah is actually very picky and almost takes more risks than I do because I like my comfortable lifestyle. I think she wouldn't say she was not accepting job offers that were coming to her that weren't good enough because she knew where she wanted to be. Yeah. I ended my time with Jimmy Choo because I wasn't getting the position that I needed from them. And so, yeah, I just, we just split ways and I was getting offers that were not exciting to me. They were fine jobs, actually paid a lot more than I ever made. And I just, I really, I knew in my heart that I, it wasn't right. And I was like, so poor. I was so poor and I was like so bored. If anybody's been unemployed, they know the boredom that comes with that because you're not making money. So it's not like you can go travel or like do anything fun. You just sit at your house and like, thank God I had a dog. But yeah, so I just I said no (laughs) to multiple things that people advised me to take because it was money. They were even like, oh, take it as an in-between. But I knew that like if I took an in-between job, I would miss an opportunity. And my boss from Jimmy Choo had like just emailed me and she's like, hey, there's a position at Dior. And I knew that I actually had wanted to be at Dior. Like it, it was like in my vision of It's like your vision board. It It was like Chanel and Dior are the two top fashion houses in the world. (laughs) I always had a good feeling about Dior, even when I was younger. And I think that it's kind of, it's weird that it worked out because, you know, when you like lose an eyelash and you make a wish for it. Yeah. For maybe five years, I wished that I could work at Dior. And I didn't even like, you know, like I didn't really find that job. Like I, I was looking at it before and there weren't positions. And I was like, please, somebody like accept my like application but nobody did and I just got really lucky that that door opened and I knew the right people so yeah I definitely persevered I'm I'm definitely a little bit more of like a like I take risks because I think I can even though I probably shouldn't I'm less of a I need to be comfortable I do like my oat lattes I'm used to be but I'm used to being comfortable <laughs> yeah but I'm a little bit more of a rebel. It's like, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I, I think that was something that I did that was very true to myself. And <laughs> well, it's really powerful and empowering 
that you were not willing to settle. Mm -hmm. There's something in there too that I think is really an important message. Right. It's like, I'm not going to compromise myself or my dream. Yeah. Even though both of you had other people saying, oh, you should do this. You should Mm -hmm. go to college. Mm -hmm. You should take the intern job. Mm -hmm. And you stayed true to what your guts were telling you. Yeah. And that's really powerful. We're also extremely stubborn. (laughs) Very stubborn. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know this, you know, in watching them from afar, you know, Lord knows I would like to have them go to university. But I know they both have learned so much. There are just different ways to learn. I mean, Hannah had Neil deGrasse Tyson in the office with her. And I know she could tell the story better than I, but he used to teach you things, right? He would come in and say, hey. He would come in and have a cocktail and then we talk about science. I mean, you were in the university of life. Yeah. And I think that's just how I learn better. That's how I prefer. Sitting in a classroom is actually really interesting to me, but I guess I just didn't like the homework. (laughs) And, you know, she had to sit with the the episodes of this amazing series, and she had to know the science text inside and out in order to edit it so that it made sense. So that was, it was like a graduate course in astrophysics, right? And earth science as well with some of that, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you stay in touch with him now? I haven't seen him since the the second season. I I actually got to take my dad out to New Mexico and we got to do a star show with Neil. And he had like a laser pointer and pointed to the stars and taught us about it. And in the middle of the desert. Yeah, Yeah. he was standing in the in the desert sands directly in front of us and pointing up at stars and saying, yep, that Pluto and it's not a planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Now I'm surrounded by the best of the best in the film industry, and that's who I learn from every single day. Yeah, lots of different ways to learn. Mm-hmm. You were right, Dad. You know, and so life has taught you amazing things. If you had words of wisdom that you would share with the audience, if there's one thing, if there's one message that would say this is what's really important about my life, or this is what I would encourage you in your life. What might that be? Well, we're, we're here in Fort Collins together today. So I think we have to start with making sure that you be with the people that you love, be with your family, and have fun with them, laugh with them, be creative with them. We're looking forward to tomorrow. We're going to sit around and hopefully paint with my mom, (laughs) their grandma at the kitchen table at my brother's house and encourage their creative needs and encourage their relationships and be in touch with them as much as possible. I feel really lucky that I have gotten to spend a lot of time with my daughters over the years, even after they've, they've moved out and now they can host me in LA and drive me to art museums and drop me off and let me see Fra Angelico and such. And I love that aspect of it. Okay. It's super cheesy, but I would say to be true to yourself. I've been through a lot. Maybe mostly I put myself through a lot in my life and I've been a million different people because I don't know why, because maybe I didn't like myself Or maybe I didn't think other people liked me and I thought I had to be this other person. And right when I felt the most like myself was maybe that story that I told you when I would say no to things because I knew what I wanted and who I was going to be. And I saw that vision. And 
since then, and maybe a little bit before, like I just, I have felt like 100% myself and that is a really good feeling. Even if not everybody likes it, it's, it's great. And that also involves your roots. Like mm. who my dad is, is part of me and who my sister is, is part of me. And like my best friend back home, she is like a very big part of me too. And I am all those people. And now I know that. And I like live my life fully. I have a couple, but the first one I, I always tell kids is just to ask for what you want. Kids or people asking me for advice in this industry, just ask, ask someone you admire for coffee, ask if there's a job available, ask what you can do. And cause the worst they can say is no. And I think that that's really helped me. It's, it's super nerve wracking though. Well, and you mm -hmm. can't gain anything mm -hmm. unless you ask, Yeah. But at least you have a 50, 50 chance if you put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Great. then my other, it's just general, just be kind. I feel like anyone who's successful, especially at my level, we don't hire jerks. Mm -hmm. Just be nice to everyone. Even if the you're in LA guy. and you think that you are, you know, <laughs> this top Instagram person or whatever you think you are, you still have to be nice to everybody. And that'll go so far. It's true because, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's the barista at the coffee shop or the person sacking your groceries or the person that you're letting in on traffic. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do, I'm in a women's random acts of kindness group. And that is so important because it's a whole principle of pay it forward. Mm -hmm. Right. And when we put those things out, that is what comes back to us. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it's not like we're just putting it out. So it comes back to us. Yeah. But there's a reality about that. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. It's like when you're kind and you really are a good person, mm -hmm. you're putting that goodness into the world, then people are going to want to be around you. People gravitate towards you. And these opportunities happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Joel is going to wrap us up with one of his poems. Lunar Eclipse. We lie on the grass in the soccer field, waiting for the moon to rise. Two daughters and I, covered in blankets, Aunt Anna quilted for them, rough army blanket beneath. Past the fence and houses, mountains hum in alpine glow, pewter weight, sky, slate blue haze. Girls are small, tucked beneath my arms in the dark, they are sleepy before the moonrise, before the shadow of earth creeps the milk-edged moon. Then they wake, giddy, wonder, and moon inhales rust, does not disappear. We bathe in it, pink light, sifting the dark field, light that defines us, this small family in soft lumps, shadow, human shapes lifting above the plain of grass. Lit too, every fragrant blade measured by diminishing moonlight. There is no hunger, just distant motion, ancient and quiet. The planet swings and its moon fills red. I want to wake Sarah, make sure she sees the full eclipse. The farthest blood orange shade stains the moon. I know she does not remember now the way I lifted her head with my hand, jostling her enough to make her eyes lift heavy in the dark. My older daughter, Hannah, awake beside us, sleepy too, ready to walk back to the basement apartment where they lived with me that summer, back to sleep on the futon in a room together as they are now. I do not know how much we see when we open our eyes from half-dream. 
I do not know if she remembers that I tried to show her the lunar eclipse, that we were all wrapped in blankets and arms as the grass breathed cool and the moon shone raspberry smoke in burnt orange. I could lift her body then, carry her in the blanket she would not leave, her warm breath damp on my shoulder, the residue my father's mouth leaves before she is a woman, the older daughter then, walking herself beside us toward the porch light and the carpet that smells of flood water and spilled beer, some modest chicken dinner I cooked in the closet kitchen with pans my mother gave me. I wanted then to wake them, to see time and the way earth covers the moon then lets it go. You know, when I first met Joel, it was 25 years ago. And here was this guy with long hair and was just so witty and so fun. And Joel and I became really great friends. And I remember lots of rounds of frisbee golf and hikes in the mountains and just great times together, whether it was listening to music or reading poetry. And knowing the girls at that age, and just watching them grow into these beautiful, deep, very wise women is such a treat. The wisdom that they shared with us tonight is, I think, so important and imperative. The importance of really listening to our inner voice, our inner selves, and really trusting that when one door closes, a window at least is going to be opened up. And sometimes it's when we are at that place where we can't see what the next step is, that something will reveal itself to us as the next step on our life journey. And it becomes such an important one. The biggest message I heard through all of this is the importance of holding on to our dreams. It takes tenacity. It takes resilience and grit. And sometimes it does take a little thicker skin not to become dissuaded when people are saying, no, this isn't for you, or no, we're not gonna value you by paying you the amount that you need. We have to hold on to our own self-worth. That's an inside job and not allow others to dictate that to us. So as we hold on to our own sense of self-worth and we hold on to our dreams, we can create an amazing reality for ourselves. It's about focusing on what your heart truly desires and allowing your natural gifts to unfold. Joel found this gift that he had to express himself in the most beautiful ways through words. And that's become his life passion and the gift that he has shared with so many others. The difficult times the Long family went through brought them even closer together and gave each one of them a certain strength that they then utilized later in their life. From Hollywood to Salt Lake to here in the studio, life's journey takes us to incredible places and it all starts right there within you. Don't be afraid to dream big. Allow yourself to ignite the spark within you Hold on to that dream and watch it come true. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, 
or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.